0: Martin Rue is the internationally acclaimed German cinematographer behind the Netflix film Midnight Sky, directed and starring George Clooney. Previously, Rue worked on Catch-22, also directed by Clooney, as well as the critically acclaimed Counterpart, Run All Night with Liam Neeson, and the British Independent Film Award winner, Control.
1: Martin Rua, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, you know, in so many of your films, but starting with, I guess, the latest, The Midnight Sky, you really... I, in watching, discover something private about myself in in, in watching them. And in the midnight sky, there's this curious, dark mirror of our presence and the future. We think about the pandemic, separation from our families, climate change, our future on the planet. How did you and your collaborators go about building these moods in order for us in the audience to feel them without it needing to be said?
2: I think... What we did is, um, I Night mean, Sky is a film with big scope. So we have big vistas, we're in space, we are on the moon, we are, you know, in the Arctic. But it's also, it's a very intimate film because it's a lot about connections. So we, when we see our people, we get close to them and we feel intimate with them because we are literally with a camera quite close to them and and looking into their faces in in this film it helped that we went on 65 mil we shot on a large format and first of all we started doing that for the big landscapes but um i think it's great also for faces because the face becomes like a landscape and you have to go quite close with the camera and that gives us an intimate feel like you say, it's two different films almost, so the approach had to be very different. We shot on a glacier in Iceland, um, we shot the Arctic, which meant we had to go with a smaller crew onto the ice. There's lots of logistics to get to a place and then get all the people there. We shot in a snowstorm, so, so we had to have handheld cameras on our shoulders and, and we were like in there with with our characters, with Augustine and, and Iris. And, That was pretty much also driven by the circumstances. So if we had weather, like if the weather was sunny, we would shoot this. If if the weather was stormy, we would try to continue with snowstorm and dramatic scenes and we had to be on our toes and, and react to what was around us. Then we, recreate a little bit of that snowstorm in in the studio because we couldn't get all of the work done in Iceland. Also, that was a serious snowstorm. And we had basically a seven-year-old girl on the side, on George's side, so we needed to protect her. And we would, certain things, we would just try um, and take that to the studio. And then when we were in space, on the spaceship, you know, stuff like the weightlessness, and that needs a lot of planning, For it to look like like there's a choreography and there's there's an intimacy to it because it's a totally different world. All of a sudden you're like very enclosed with with our characters. And the one moment when we went into on the spacewalk, we were like, you know, in zero gravity. We never wanted it to be like grounded. So so the camera's always floating and and it's always moving and and there's no up and down. People all of a sudden are upside down you know we film them upside down and and we wanted to give you the feeling that it doesn't really matter because yeah in weightlessness you are weightless and everything we know about life you know like like your feet are down and and the walls are like this and everything is straight and all that goes out of the window and then we're trying to give you a feeling of being there
1: and it's, I love how it just comes together, as you say, you have to you have these challenges of, I mean, there's a scene, for those who haven't discovered it yet, where the, the blood is kind of, you're talking about choreographies, there's an animation of blood, and and so I, I, I try to imagine what it is, because there's a certain amount of, as you say, CGI that you have to leave an imaginative space for, and yet you're, you're I wonder what those conversations are like, or and I think about when you speak about choreography, how you are leaving a space for the composer. And I know you've worked with some composers, like, I have to say, it's like an ongoing relationship, like with George Clooney. So how does that work?
2: On that one, we did basically the blood scene and the spacewalk. We, and, and also, you know, when, when Augustine is with Iris in the pot and that sings at night, we did a previous. We we basically had a like a rough 3D model. And in that 3D model, I could basically was done to scale. So, so there was a 3D space I could walk in. I would take an iPad. We could have done it with goggles, but I find that irritating. But I take I took an iPad and and give camera settings. And then I would follow uh, 3D characters and then would um, film them and gather shots. And then, you know, you could edit that. Basically, you do a rough 3D animation. That's how you start. that process For the spacewalk took about two months. You do a rough 3D animation. Then you start filming it with the iPad while you, you know, as you go to a big meeting room, there's tape marks on the floor so you know the scale of the spaceship, you know where people are moving. Then you take the iPad, you go in there, you, do, you film it. But it's, it's, instead of characters, instead of actors, you have 3D mannequins. And that, that takes a little bit time to get used to, but then you realize, for example, you realize that the spaceship should be longer so, so they get, can travel more distance and it looks more impressive and more dangerous and later. Or you realize, you know, the action is wrong because they, they can't linger here. if The script uh, says that we need more time. And then we figured all of that out. We, we created a lot of shots. We created a choreography, so to say, and that was edited by Steve Marioni, our editor. We worked out with George what changes we wanted to do or needed to do. And then we had a really good idea before we started filming that sequence, what we needed to do. Which shots are fully CGI? Which shots are, you know, partly CGI? What elements do we need? What, how can we shoot it?
1: So you're acting in that moment because you are our eyes. As I understand, it's a kind of acting, reacting. I wonder how important it is for you to feel the emotions you want to impart to us or to remove yourself a bit from the emotions or just be aware of the intended emotions.
2: No, I, you know, like a lot of American cameramen, they work with camera operators. I can't do that. I have to be on the, ca- on the camera and I want to feel... Two things I want to do when I'm filming. I want to be there for the actors to give them a space. They can move in and they can feel safe. In. And so, so we are providing a room. And then also it's I want to be there because it's simple things. You know, sometimes somebody looks like that and then the camera does something and it could destroy the moment or it could be like a good fellow being there with them. And that's what I intend to do. That's what I love. You know the, the, I try to create that intimacy and then give the people in front of the camera the room to feel safe and, and also to yeah to, to react to them.
1: It, it really comes across because, you know, you can have a shot list, but it's done by maybe even similar shot, but it, it I feel the emotion very, very much so. I, I like that. And I think about when you speak about trust and you've collaborated a number of times with George Clooney, and I wonder what that shorthand is like. And it must be something like that. You have this shorthand or, and I just have to say, and I'm sure others have observed this, he disappears completely in the midnight sky. I mean, for mm. me, he disappears. I just see a kind of pure emotion in his need, and I think that is a great skill. How you, how you're able, you and the team were able to do that.
2: Well, George is special because George picks carefully who he works with, but then you know, once he made up his mind, he's very trustful and and he doesn't doubt you or he. You know, it's also when we start talking about films very early on. You know, he has certain ideas and and he. His story doesn't change, you know. It's it's like things evolve and, and he's very pragmatic. So so you know, I don't know, if we wanted to shoot something and the weather was not like we expected, then you would say, okay, let's do this now, let's do that. He's not getting stuck, so so he's always on his toes, but but in terms of collaboration, he's once he wrote routes for you, he's you know, there's no doubt, there's no second guessing. He's you know, and then that's really very helpful.
1: Again, dealing with themes of survival are essential stories, but if you go to then the project before Catch 22, and I don't know, there's a lot of, I mean, it's such a tonal shift. So, what do you enjoy about filming a story that is uh, largely image based without so much dialogue? Just what was, how do you contrast those two experiences?
2: I, I just love that. I mean, that's the beauty of our job that we can dive into all those different worlds and then discover them, you know, like, like I think the first film I did, which was noted was Control. And that's a black and white movie in the seventies, in seventies, early eighties in England. And then the, with working class people, the next film I did was a 16th century film. So, so I love doing that. And and I love the challenge of that. And I love that we can create all these words. Um, it's just magic to it.
1: Control is again yet another palette change, of course, b- beautifully shot in black and white. Um yeah, I was sticking a little bit with the catch twenty two of them the multiple characters of the challenges the yeah. challenges of working with such a, a big palette like that.
2: Catch twenty two was um, a fortunate thing because we were again, it's there's a huge contrast in this. So, so there's all the craziness and bureaucracy in, in the camp and and. the Airbase where, where all those soldiers are stationed. And, and there's a lot of talk and, and going back and forth. And, and we wanted to capture that in a you know, very dry, comedic way, but, but without trying to be too funny with our camera. We did a bit of um, 70s style, we used zooms quite a lot. We, we have quite a few snap zooms in there. But then at the same time, when we go into the air, that's where people really die and disappear and, and all these terrible things happen. We wanted that to really get to you. So, so that should be a real There, you know, that's why we use two quite different styles. One is, you know, there's a lot of movement there's a steady cam and and cranes and stuff on the ground. And when we go into the air, it's all hand and manic inside the planes and we're really close and we had a, fuselage of a of an original V25, which we put on a gimbal and then, and then we had it on a bladder. And we were in there and, and we didn't prepare it or build it so we could take it out, get nice shots on the lenses. It was basically, on some of those shots, I was basically almost sitting on the lap of the actors with a handheld camera. We tried to build it very small and we were always with our characters in there.
1: It's, it's interesting to contrast uh, yeah it's such a complicated process I can't even imagine it of course there's no winners in war before that you worked on a series counterpart which is a different kind of warfare a different kind of you know parallel worlds I guess it relates to Midnight Sky as well like two stories life on this planet and maybe life in a parallel world I mean what were your reflections and what were the challenges that you had to into in film two worlds in that way, and maybe should explain the story a little bit for those who might not know the story of counterpart
2: oh counterpart is basically imagine that two world exists and there's a there's a doorway between the two worlds and and one world is struck, was struck by an uh, epidemic a few years ago so so they have you know life is not that easy on their side, and somebody from that world comes over to. Let's say our word, and then through that doorway, and 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 they start killing people on our side, and we wouldn't know why. So so that story unfolds over ten episodes, and then it's it's almost like a Cold War spy film, with the background of an epidemic, and with a little bit of a sci-fi niche. But we we that one we you know, we didn't want to get gimmicky about science fiction stuff. So that's pretty much grounded. It could be happening right now and we wouldn't know it. And because both sides also, they know of each other and they know of that doorway. They control it and they have a diplomatic exchange. So it's really like a cold war. There's a war. Only certain people can go through that's parallel universe. So you go to the same locations, but one is slightly different than the other. You know, one has less people. One, people were wearing masks and uh, sanitized hands all the time. And what we have now, yeah, welcome. <laughs> but again, also there's a lot of human drama. There's great dialogues in there. There's uh, fantastic actors and, if you have all of that if you have great actors I, I always feel like i don't want to take over too much i want to provide a room in which they can perform and and if they in which they can shine and and you know i want to give it a style but i don't want to be overtaken with style over the content so so ideally all comes together and and forms something quite unique and quite beautiful or quite you know doesn't always have to be beautiful but it should be the right tone and and it should be touching you getting you
1: well it definitely comes across and that's why i was thinking like i think we should watch your films or their television miniseries maybe watch it once for this with the story the first time and then maybe put the, on mute and we can appreciate the images too because it's and it never steps over what i like is it seems like of course it must take a enormous amount of planning but it still feels very spontaneous and organic that yeah I, I, and you're responding to the landscapes as you say uh, things happen and you're you're adapting to that
2: oh thank you yeah i think that's ideally that's what you want to do you want to i think the most important thing you need to do to film something or you know if you take a picture it's it's the same thing what you want to do you want to have a point of view. You want to be, you know, you want to know why you take this picture or you want, you know, not not analyzing too much, but I think you want to take a point of view. And and from, once you have that defined, you can react to things. You can say, oh yeah, yeah, this is a good shot, but you know, that shot is not what we do, you know, all of a sudden we can't go fish. eye. you know, it's, it's almost like if you watch a Terrence Malick movie, there's always a certain way they look and feel. I try to not get stuck in one look because I like, I love to explore different things. That's why I love the range. And then I love that, you know, catch was so different than midnight sky and the next film will be very different again. and, And so I love doing that. I don't want to get stuck into one thing and then, you know, I don't know, not, I think that will be boring. And also I think it's not a good business idea because if that model gets you know, out of fashion, you might not be working much. But no, it's more for my own sake. I, I love to dive into those different worlds and do different styles. But I think, yes, take for for each project, I always try to get the right feel for it. And once I have the right feeling and, and know where I stand, a lot of things fall into place. The lighting falls into place. The choices of lenses fall into place, you know. Do you do it like this? Do you do it like that? Is this or is this just a gimmick? And you have to be careful of gimmicks because the audiences they know and they realize that very quickly.
1: Yes, we're so visually smart without even not knowing how to make it ourselves, but we have become very visually literate. But because you grew up in Germany, make your career in London, you know, you know, and then you're filming in Italy or filming in Iceland. So it is something like you're a traveller.
2: Yeah, I It's that I grew up in Germany and and my parents were like, they they had nothing to do. Nobody in my family has anything to do with them. So I had to go places. So I started studying a little bit of photography in Sevilla in Spain and then did two years, uh, no, one year worked as a runner in London. I'm very naive because I, I thought, you know, I, I want to work internationally. I try a film, I give it a shot, and if it doesn't work, then I at least I've tried it. And then found a job as a runner, and then that's when I also that's the first time I saw what cameramen do because I, then I still wanted to be a director. But when I saw what cameramen do or directors, photography do, I, that's I loved that, and then I wanted to. I knew that's that's me, and that hasn't changed since. So, yes, I've been traveling quite a bit. There's a lot of, you know, Europe is beautiful because it's so many different worlds next to each other, you know, in one hour you're from Paris in Berlin or London or, yeah, you know, two hours to Madrid. How beautiful is that? So there's a lot of influences, yes. Also, when I started um, shooting my first things, I did a lot of music videos. And in those music videos in the 90s, you know, there were, again, there was so many different styles we tried, so many different things. And that's also, that's how I know sometimes you can get away with very rough things and very little things. And sometimes you just need to be, you know, you can't just improvise that that spacewalk we did. You just can't wing that. You have to be prepared. But other stuff like in the Arctic, in midnight sky, yes, you have to be winging it because, you know, if you're in a snowstorm and then you have 100 kilometer winds and then, you know, your actor's eyes are freezing and then you might only get, you know, two takes or one take of a thing. So, So you have to be there and you have to be present.
1: And speaking of music, because we we discussed a little bit before Control, which is such a, I think of it, it's not documentary because it's very formal and artistic, but I'm thinking about your coming up through music videos. Uh, Yeah, Discuss that process, because you're talking about working within budget and...
2: Yeah, you know, one fortunate thing, for example, I met Anton Corbein through music videos, a, a German singer Herbert Gronemeyer, who was also an actor in this boat in the original one, he introduced us because I had done some work with him. One of them, for example, was a music video which we had done with Herbert in Moscow and where we went to Star City and then filmed in that compound where they basically trained the cosmonauts. And that was a documentary work, but it was a music video in that environment and was actually Turned out quite nice, and Anton loved that, and that's how we got connected. I, I, you know, I think the music video thing—that's an interesting one because at the, you know, for me it was great because I could try so many different things. You know, some stuff is almost like cosmetic beauty for some. Sometimes, you know, you do very fast storytelling. So you always loved storytelling more than the pure image stuff because the pure image stuff is yes that's cool but it could be this or it could be that there's no real you know it should be fashionable yes I, I like that but it's also quite shallow and uh, can be hollow and and so if it's story I, it's easier for me you know it's, I like it better I, li- I like the music videos because that was a great experience and that was a great way to try it, a lot of things.
0: From the conception of a story to its portrayal on the screen, the production of television and film can be one of the most fascinating creative processes to dissect. Though, like so many stories that are told, attention tends to fall upon riveting introductions or climactic endings. The Aaron Sorkins of the world are praised for their creativity and the Christopher Nolans for their polished final products. Martin Rue embodies one of the most overlooked, yet vital roles, in creating the visual narratives of today. Listening to the way that Martin describes his work as a cinematographer, in some ways, I now see his role as a sort of translator. He's a vital instrument in guiding the audience through a story. I know that I myself tend to contribute an immersive movie to the hard work of directors, actors, and writers but the ability to visually transpose the eccentric imagination of a writer can be a daunting task, one which carries an immense amount of weight. I had always imagined that mastering a certain genre was much like specializing in a form of medicine, but in hearing the dedicated manner in which he approaches such a wide variety of projects, to me, this illustrates a profound understanding for the art of visual storytelling. His willingness and ability to immerse himself into a script is palpable in the way in which he evolves and adapts when the story demands. Martin acknowledges past inspirations, but appreciates the unique nature of every script. In doing so, he's provided a space for scenes to unfold in front of him. And to that degree, it would seem almost instinctive for a cinema legend like George Clooney to invest so much faith into him. Even with just a quick glance at Martin Rua's resume, the wide array of experiences in different genres points to nothing less than an immensely eclectic imagination. Regardless how you feel about the source material, there is always a profound level of empathy which Martin instills into his work. With this, he has served countless viewers with vivid visuals that deliver impactful stories in themselves. If I were to choose my favorite insight from Martin, it would be just how important trust and freedom come into play when creating a collaborative work of art. It's undoubtedly an element of his process that has gained him the respect of renowned actors like Clooney. It's also this sense of teamwork that seems to set his medium of entertainment apart from so many other art forms.
1: It's interesting that you say that you're, and I see it, that you're very interested in story. You want not to break an image that has no reason. Why is that person there? What is their relationship to the other character? What does that mean at this angle? Does that uh, communicate fear, anxiety, love, or joy? But one thing that this uh, writer-director told me, and it really surprised me because he had a background in music, talking about the importance of music and filmmaking, he said that the language was not important to him. So I, I always remember that because I thought it was a strange thing for a writer to say, but he's talking about the importance of what you bring with you with images
2: yeah but i would say for me the technique is not that important you know because a lot of people think camera is so technical but but you know i keep forgetting what i've done so so if you ask me certain things i remember but like on and then on this film on sky which is not too long ago but but I, I sometimes see things and then I go like, how did we do this? And I would need to do research and, you know, go back deep into my memory because I keep forgetting that. It's not that important to me, the technique. Which camera do we use? Which lenses? Oh, yeah, I think it was, was it that or was it that? It's, it's a tool, so I use it and then I move on and the next thing might be quite different.
1: So you definitely don't, don't uh, yeah, in both levels, filmmakers, cinematographers appreciate you and the general public just gets swept away by the feeling. And then when you're working, and I don't know if you're present, you're right now in Boston. So I don't know if it's another yeah. television or is it film? I know no, that that's the no. thing about working for scale. And I just want that, but you can tell me what you're doing now and maybe how it is for working for different scales.
2: I'm working on a movie called The Tender Bar. I'm working with George again, and we'll be shooting. It's a coming-of-age story, which takes place in the 70s and 80s. So it's a very different film to what we did earlier. And it's, yeah, it's more, it's intimate. It's a small story. And uh, yeah, I can't say much more.
1: No, I wasn't trying to be, but I guess I was interested in the working for scale uh, or working for different scales and and I know also with the, the Midnight Sky, it was shot initially for IMAX or, I mean, just how, how scale comes into your consideration.
2: I think scale just allows you to tell things, you know, on Midnight Sky, we didn't have to make many compromises, so so... We had a budget, a decent budget. We could do things which, on a small budget, would be very tricky and would feel different. So, maybe it could have worked, but it would would have been a very different film. So, so the the elegance and the s- scope of it, I think, you get of scale. But other than that, it, you know, I don't. Some of my favorite films are very small films, you know, like, like and then I don't think, also I think actually uh, another thing, if if the story is good and if the performances are good, it doesn't really matter how the film looks, to be honest. Because there's uh, quite a few examples of, you know, of films which are not that great looking, but but they are fantastic films because they, they are getting everything combined and they come out at the right time. And and I you know, I I so, so I think we shouldn't be, as cameramen, we shouldn't be too self-important about it.
1: I was also thinking about screen size and what that does to your consideration. Oh,
2: I always love to do it as as if it was a film for screen. Yeah. Specifically Midnight Sky, yes, that was we shot on 65 mil. We it was supposed to be an imax release in certain uh, you know limited small release but but it was also released it was also meant to be for big screen so if you are impressed by seeing it on on a tv i wish you could see, could have seen it on a big screen because it is such a big difference when we when we did the post i went to london a few times and then we were supposed to get together in April like two months after our shooting to to see things and tests and because of corona that didn't happen but we got together in September and so in September for the first time and in between we had meetings and we looked at, at sequences on iPads and then in September was the first time we saw sh- certain shots on in full glory on on a, a screen it was such a big difference it was so beautiful yeah, but I I don't know. I don't think of the size of the screen, but I think it should be visually I think it should be touching. Mm-hmm. And and I try again, it's it's the uh, finding the right tone for the for the project and, and uh finding your point of view. But the screen becomes a canvas you use for that. And bigger screens, yes, I love some. The bigger the better, but yeah.
1: So I think that uh For you, where did you find, you know, important lessons for creating images of beauty or visual pleasure on screen? I guess I want to go through the different emotions, like where were certain touchstones for you, works that were important or people who taught you, yeah, about beauty, creating the on-screen, and then I guess the other emotions or visual elements.
2: I don't know. Early on in my career, I met a cameraman called Mike Saban he was you know when i was as a run, working as a runner in london i would go on weekends i would try to go to shoots and then see what you know as see as much as many shoots as i could and then mike once told me you know our job would be like you know 10% is craft 10% is talent and 80% would be diplomacy and and it's actually interesting because we we are quite often we are caught in between you know producers telling you, oh, you can't have this, or you have to do this, or this is the framework. And, and, and then directors telling you, oh, but, you know, I want to see the whole world at night. And you go like, that's a lot of money. And then, so so I, I think that was one interesting thing I learned early on. I I don't know, there's many people you meet along the way and then you pick up things from them. You know, I loved when I started working with Anton Corbein this photography is so, you know, he it goes to people. He always, have, you know, mainly uses one lens and one camera. It's not complicated. It's, but he gets intimate with people because he, the way he is with them, and then that uh, that's why his portrait photography is so stunning. And and over the years, you know, it still is, and it's relevant. And then because he's curious and he's open and he just uh, allows things to happen. I love that and, and other creative things, you know. I, I I don't know, early on I did some workshops with some of the great DPs like uh, Robbie Muller and, and I I don't know. And and then you watch films. You watch films, you read and you you listen to what people have to say about them.
1: I wonder about setting up of moods where you have, uh, you know, tension or this loneliness that you transmit as well, which is beautiful. I, I just don't, I, I, I'm not sure it's a vocabulary, it's a thing that you know by instinct, you know, where you learn some of those things.
2: I think it's instinct a little bit. And it's, see, I some people do moods and then come with a lot of photographers and, and then I don't know how that works, because yes, I, I look for, I look for moods, I look for films which could be relevant for, for the next project, I could look for states photographers, but then I forget it because our film will be so different again, you know, you cannot, like, like with Midnight Sky, we look at science fiction films, but our spaceship looks different than any other spaceship I've seen. So. How can I just copy what they did in Alien, or uh, you know that would be wrong, or gravity doesn't work for that, because our spaceship is so different interior, and then our story is quite different so so you look at certain areas where you go like, "Oh yeah, maybe that could be interesting, or this could be an interesting tool, or so, but, but I don't I think for me, it's more getting a feeling getting the right feeling or getting a feeling that makes you confident about the story. And then from there, things fall into place.
1: And going to some of your more, I mean, they're all literary, I could catch 22's literary, but mm-hmm. maybe some other more literary based, uh, or, you know, with collaborating with David Hare on page eight or American Pastoral, you know, I'm imagining the direction process that was directed by Ian McGregor, you know, the direction process is, is different the collaboration is, is different how we were working with that source material and
2: yeah i mean d- two very different characters and and people but it was david was fantastic uh, he's such a good writer and he's such a good spot but he was he was also very entertaining because you know i loved working with him and and yeah, on page eight was such a great ca- ensemble cast. But David was funny also, you know, because, again, he had a lot of trust and then we would, he comes from theater, so, so there's a lot of big dialogue scenes in there and then people sitting and talking. So he, I remember we did a scene and then he would rehearse with the actors and I would be there in the room and watch it. And, 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 And then when he was done, sometimes it would be, you know, a person would be standing there at the door and one would be sitting here on the bed and would be, and he would, they wouldn't move and they would be there. And then he would be like, until he was happy with the dialogue. And then uh, he said, yeah, great, fantastic. Martin, you have any idea how we shoot this? And then, you know, we we did that and, and I told him what I've, thought it could be how it could be done and then you know he went with it and then that was very nice so i live of that trust of people and then that together with the position you stand and your point of view i think that makes it easy not easy but that makes it possible and with yun it was yun and i we would sit down every weekend he would basically because he's Eunice is also the main character in American Pastora, and he has, I think, only very few scenes where he's not in. So he had to prepare himself very much for the role and he also had to direct the film. So he would, we would sit down every Saturday and we would shot this and then prepare everything and then we had a, by the time we started, we almost had the whole film shot listed and then we would revisit if you know, if we lost the location, or if we had to move things, or if we had if our timing changed and we had less time for some things or some, you know, then we sat down on weekends again and then we prepared and we planned everything and then and then he would refer to me when he was not sure if the shot worked or not. So I couldn't have done that if, if he was in doubt about me or what we had been doing. So so then we would have been in a world of pain, probably.
1: I think that with and that's such a an iconic novel as well by Philip Roth. But I, I think with the in all your films as we were talking about before, they're touching on. It seems like we can see them as mirrors of what is going on now. Say with American pastoral, of course, there is the character Mary, and it's you know writing yeah. anti-war, and and I see. I wonder what it's like, you know, having created these worlds visually that maybe resemble things that we are going on going on now. Not exactly, but we see a lot of riots. We see a lot, you know what's happening in the world is feeling like some of these fictions you've created. How does that? How does it make you? look at the news and what happens in the world now differently? I'm not sure if that's a precise enough question.
2: Oh, um, now first of all, I, I was happy and lucky that I got offered those stories because I, I'm i always looking for a story which I like or which interests me or which touches me. And so it was like I was happy to to... Have a chance to do these films. I don't know. The, the world right now is confusing. The biggest strangest thing I think is that truth, you know, truth seems to be diminished by tweets or by people, who, you know, have their own alternative, alternate facts. That, that's the most confusing thing. So how can we talk? If you tell me the wall behind you is red, and I tell you no, it's white. And if you believe that it's right, there's no basis. And that, that's the most confusing thing in these days. And, and that's the most shocking thing. It's always been, you know, raves or, you know, of r- riots, and, and that comes and goes. But I think the, that we lose the basis of how to talk to each other. That's the most confusing. Thing. And that's, I think, the biggest threat to all of us.
1: I I think it's interesting and what I think that I mean they've I mean sometimes people say because I say diminished funding for the arts or people sometimes feel like oh so much there's other issues out in the world that we need to focus on instead of the arts but I feel they're essential you know teaching tools but one thing beyond that that i think that we can all learn from the arts and you know firsthand is how you're all collaborating <laughs> you all want to get to the same mm. and that doesn't seem to exist as much in other disciplines now
2: no but that's i mean that's one of the most beautiful things when you know i don't know you film the scene and all of a sudden people go like that moment when you do something and it happens every now and then and when you do something and you don't know that you're there anymore and, and the whole crew becomes one and that, that that's magic we can create and if that comes across later when people see the film, that's, that's I think that's still pure magic and I, that, that's why I love my job so much.
1: Yeah. Well, it really is beautiful. I wish we could learn more from that. I wish we knew all how to even listen to each other in that way. <laughs> but it's, uh, there are some things filmmakers can really teach the rest of the world. I thought that is in the watching of the Catch-22 as well, where the characters, of course, are in a war that they're not sure where they don't want to be in the war. And, and I thought the, the active filmmaking is a kind of beautiful war where you're all, you know what you want to achieve. But uh, you say the, and you said some of the metaphors are this, like the shot list and landing it and things. It's like a beautiful yeah. war you're making together.
2: Maybe it's more a mission to climb the mountain rather than a war. But uh, yes, there's a hierarchy, there's this, you know, you need strong leadership. And and you need a few chiefs on a film set, I think. But no, for me, it, it, I always think it's more like a journey you do together, like an expedition more than a war. Yes, but you're right, we have, yeah, we shoot, we, you know, you shot this thing. Yes, we have all of that. And if sometimes it's like a military operation because we don't, you know, every other job you would do, you have two or three months to get used to each other. Now my next film is over in three months. So it's like we have to work together and it all has function. But maybe that's why we need that strong hierarchies sometimes.
1: But as you think about, you know, education and the environment and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, and you reflect on your body of work, these meditations on war, the fallibility of people, life on this planet, social upheavals and activisms, What does it touch you?
2: I I think it's a you know, I have an 11 year old son, so I keep thinking about yes, environment is so terrible, and then we have you know, warmest year after warmest year after warmest years, which is uh shocking. So, and we see that the world changes because we have all humankind has done over you know, last hundred years the biggest damage to nature and to, to our planet. But I also think that there's a lot of positive things happening. There's like, you know, the the movement around Greater Thunberg, that that had an, such an impact. And there's always, you know, there's so many new technologies. I don't know if you remember, do you remember what was before the iPhone? So, so and we didn't see that coming. So there might be more positive things out there. So, so I don't want to, you know, I would love to tell my son, for example, don't get bogged down by all the negative news. You know, there's so much positive things, and and we have to be responsible. We should come together. We should listen to each other and and respect each other, and and then we can grow together in this. Also, I think it's yes. Look for the positive news. Is also news is only you know like like i don't know i heard recently that bad news on twitter travels six times as fast they spread six times as fast so you really have to look for the good news because they are there but everybody's listening more to the bad stuff don't get scared so i think there's a lot of things to be positive about
1: ah i think that is such a beautiful message i wonder you talk about if personally I have managed to evade most of the bad news although I know the facts of the world but sometimes when you're involved in the arts it kind of acts as a filter and you're using it for right. a positive story so I'm sure you have that in your life but personally on in relation to your son then are there things that beyond the advice I'm just in terms of his education or how you are educating him for life
2: well you know for example we put him into a bilingual school in Berlin so because we always were not sure if we wanted to maybe go to LA later or something like that now I think we would not but we um, put him in international school which leads to he has people from all over the world in his classes and you know I think he sees that a diverse you know how diverse of can help or add to his you know to his life and he's been traveling a lot he's been seeing a lot of things so i would hope that um, he keeps an open mind to other people and he's not bogged down or or gets stuck into you know defending something which ultimately damages his awareness or um that's one thing we do and then yeah, uh, he's extremely positive, and he's also so one thing which he is, which I never was as a child. As a child, we were taught to be, you know, quiet, not to be noted, and and you know, don't don't talk to the adults like this or like that. And he's like, he's not scared. He's so self confident, and I I hope that he can maintain that.
1: It's certainly the challenge, how to maintain the innocence and wonder. And you have done that through your films, most recently, The, the Midnight Sky, which I just think is a beautiful message of, to make us aware of how you depict uh, the child Iris as a faith, what we believe in for the future world. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Martin Ruh, for inviting us into your visual world, the depth of your imagination, and compassionate camera work, telling important stories about our time, which help us understand the world as it is and how it might be, for your important contributions to cinematic storytelling. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate of Interviewer and Producer on this podcast is Brett Young. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Windsor Time was composed by Nicholas Anandolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.